Kreativ. Smart, slutty little degenerate angels, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Taboo, your favorite fast track train into the underworld. This show is an exploration of subculture and the road less traveled and spoken about as told through anonymous confessions from our beautiful listeners all over the world who've actually lived through them. For anyone new here or who just needs a little reminder, my name is Allie Weiss. I'm a native New York actor, writer, and on-air host known for my big eyebrows, my big opinions, and my insatiable love of any and all topics, people, ideas, and experiences that, shall we say, would make your conservative aunt clutch her pearls. So, It's funny, someone actually gave me feedback in an iTunes podcast review saying that the worst part of this show is my monologues in the beginning. And now I'm like, uh, are you voting me off the island, y'all? I totally agree that our confessors are light years more interesting than I am. Like, I've never given a politician a hand job or dealt drugs to my kids, friends, parents, or been a polo groom for royals, I admit it, you know, by all means, in comparison, I am a fucking square. But I do enjoy telling you why exactly I feel motivated to explore certain subjects and subcultures um, so that no one thinks I'm like fetishizing or exploiting these experiences, you know? Storytelling can be very different from reporting. And also like, I face enough rejection in my acting and hosting career, guys. Let me at least have this one safe space to feel like I matter just a little bit, okay? Love you. So this week, we are talking about teachers. Mm. I went to a super hippie private school where the student-teacher relationship was very out of the ordinary. Like, we called them by their first names sometimes even their nicknames. My principal had all Jonathan Adler furniture and a pet parrot, and he was openly gay. And the students and teachers had a very open and honest dialogue about things that were going on in the world at large, you know, sometimes instead of following the curriculum. Um, There was banter, banta, as they'd say in Love Island, and the respect always flowed both ways, which was really cool. But even so, my classmates and I never really considered that my teachers had lives outside the classroom. And I think that this is really common. I think that if you polled, you know, millions of students, like the overwhelming majority would probably tell you that. Like as much older at the time, authority figures, they were kind of enigmas. And of course, logically, I knew they did have lives outside of school, but it was like, when the clock struck 3.15, they would just poof and, you know, turn into a pumpkin or disappear into thin air, Um, especially with the stricter or scarier ones. It was kind of inconceivable that they would have spouses and children and, like, have sex and drink alcohol and go to the beach over the summer. You know what I mean? 
Like, it's a strange relationship. Um, not unlike that of a therapist, right? Where there's this profound intimacy between the two of you, but it's contained inside a specific area and amount of time. I had this one English teacher who was literally just the chicest, most interesting woman ever. Um, Totally an influence for me. She wore Rick Owens boots and had a platinum blonde, short cropped haircut. She was addicted to indoor cycling. I don't know why I know that. Like she must have told us, but like I know that she was addicted to indoor cycling and iconic. She used a platinum Amex as a bookmark in the Canterbury Tales. And if I remember correctly, she also had a PhD in violent women, like literally in violent women from some historical era. She was also a bitch in the best possible way, like in the sense that she just did not take any shit from any of us little fucker seniors, especially the boys who were like smoking weed in the park on every break and just acting out. And she had no problem forcing someone to stand in front of the classroom, totally unannounced, and recite old English. Um, And then I ran into her on the street at one point and found out that she lived in this gorgeous historical brownstone a few blocks away from my parents. And I officially wanted to be her. But even still, like actors or musicians or anyone else who we feel like we know, but who's in a position of removed authority or superiority, it was weird that this person, that all of these people, that all of my teachers were responsible for shaping my mind, my tastes, my conversational skills. You know what I mean? Like, I was the Play-Doh and and they were the hands, and yet I really didn't know anything about them. How do they deal with having that much responsibility, especially when they're young and at the beginning of their careers? I mean, I look back on where I was when I was, what, 25? And bro, like, was I qualified to stand in front of a classroom of kids and, like, tell them what to do with their lives? Absolutely not. So I was thinking, like, do teachers have imposter syndrome? Uh, Do they have to have blind self-belief? How does one walk the line between being available to their students as a mentor and friend, but not veering into inappropriate territory? And then when you look at the two extreme ends of the spectrum, how the literal F-U-C-K do they deal with both, on the one hand, uber-entitled children at these elite private schools whose parents are, like, rich and important and famous? Or, you know, the violent behavioral issues that often occur in low-income areas. And so, as you can hear, suddenly, like, I've become as infatuated with the lives of teachers as I am with the cast of fucking Love Island UK once they return from Mallorca. (laughs) So, anyway, sorry for all of you who hate my opening monologues, but that's why we're here. And now I want you to sharpen your pencils, bust out your lined notebooks, and get ready, because this is Tales of Taboo. I work at a public special education school just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a speech teacher. I have been there for two years now. I accepted it because they were hiring. Turns out they're always hiring. My students are all at my school because they could not find success in the public education school, which is a fancy way of saying that they're too emotionally and physically violent. The general vibe of my school is chaos. I think a lot of screaming. Every staff member has a radio on them. The radio is constantly going off, you know calling for support um, to assist students. My school is structured so that there are 
eight padded rooms, and we call them safe zones, and they're where students can be transported to if they are endangering themselves or others. Class sizes are small. There's about four to seven kids per class. All my students are supposed to get one-to-one support. Rarely, if ever happens, there's just not enough teachers, especially after what teachers went through in the pandemic. The majority of my students are low socioeconomic status, but some are high. There are students that are Black, that are Latinx, white. There's really no predominant racial background. All of my students have emotional disorders. Um, Most of my students have significant trauma. I have many students who come from foster care backgrounds or group home backgrounds. I have one student that has been in 17 foster homes. He's eight years old. The last foster home, he was in a room by himself for 11 days. I have another student who is in a group home in Boston. He witnessed his dad die of an overdose when he was six. Then he witnessed his aunt die of an overdose uh, when he was 13. So while my students do have really explosive behaviors, oftentimes, can you blame them? I mean, these students have been through more than most people have been through in their lifetimes. Um, And I just have worlds of empathy for them. Some of my students have psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism spectrum disorder. Um, Other students I have go home to actively abusive households. Uh, I have called DCF several times. One of my students, for example, said that his dad left him in a parking lot for a few hours overnight a couple weeks ago, and that's just something we have to call in. Unfortunately, DCF is used to it and really like minimally is done. Um, I also have a student that identifies as a neo-Nazi. He thinks that he was related to Hitler in a past life. Um, So the the language that he uses is very colorful and that is uh, the kind of more that emotional violent side. Anything you think you know about being a teacher in my school, scrap that. Um, You're not sitting down, you're not planning lessons. You're really just doing the best you can and flying by the seat of your pants. I always have, you know, a stack of materials with me at all times, Um, but you have to meet the students where they're at. Sometimes my students are having great days and I walk in the classroom and talk to their teacher or their teacher assistants and they say, you know, so-and-so is is awesome today. He's ready to learn. Great. That might be a day where I try to do a worksheet with them. Other times I'll walk into the classroom and they'll say that, oh, um, he's been in the safe space or, you know, that padded room uh, for four hours today. And, um, he's not coming out. So, you know, I'll go in there with him. Other times I'll walk into the classroom and they'll say that, oh, um, he's been in the safe space or, you know, that padded room uh, for four hours today and um, he's not coming out. So, you know, I'll go in there with him and... At first, I was petrified. My adrenaline was always running, um, thinking that, you know, am I are they going to lash out? Am I going to get hurt? Now, that adrenaline rush is totally gone. Nothing phases me. I've, you know, my students have bit me. They've spit at me. They've punched me. Um, nothing really, really phases me anymore, um, for, for better or for worse. Teaching assistants are responsible for that physical management piece of the student. So teachers and specialists like myself are sometimes glorified bodyguards, which is a tough job. And I think they get paid around $17 an hour, which just is crazy. You get that much in Dunkin' Donuts. So that is our most limited resource. And it definitely shows, especially when we're short staffed. Um, And, you know, 
Students don't care if there's enough staff in the room. I've seen a couple active concussions happening. Students grab a hold of teachers' hairs. I've seen heads being smashed into things, walls. Uh, we're instructed to wear our hair up for a reason. But um, so I've seen some serious injuries like that. I've seen a teacher get bit um, and need stitches right after. Again, you know, I've gotten bit. Thankfully, I haven't needed medical attention yet. But but these are all, you know typical routines. None of us even bat an eye. I have assisted in a few medical sedations. We've had to call the police in if students are really getting too violent and we think that they're endangering themselves and others seriously. Um, and, you know, I've had to, you know, help hold students down while they get intravenous medication to sedate them, um, which is, is super tough. And these students normally go on to psychiatric schools. Um, they don't normally stay at the schools that I work at because we, we try not to, you know, that's not the best practice. Earning respect of my students is the biggest challenge that I've had, but the biggest success. Over the course of the two years, I've learned that what students need is to be taught that they actually, you know, are worth something, which sounds terrible. But again, they all have come into this school thinking, I'm not good enough to be in school. That's what they've been told over and over again. So redefining what education is, is what I have taught myself. It's not just sitting down and doing worksheets and having lessons. It's how, when can you sneak in teaching? I have snuck in, you know, working on adjectives when a student is in the middle of my arms, you know, like angry, giving them that language to describe their emotions. That's kind of the teaching that I really try to do. I um, make around $75,000. I am about six months away from graduating with my doctorate, which is exciting, but I also could make a lot more money doing something different. However, I truly believe I work with the best people on the planet. You have to be from a different breed to every single day walk into a building knowing that, you know, your physical safety isn't guaranteed. And also you carry these kids' stories home with you. It's definitely a calling. I absolutely feel that now knowing that these kids are out there and the impact they've made on me, it sounds cliche, but they have taught me so much perspective in life and they teach me things every single day. I could not imagine doing anything else. I am a public school teacher in New York City. I've been a teacher for three years. I work at a Title I school, meaning lower income and a lot of times lower test scores. I became a teacher through a fellowship program, which pays for most of your master's, and they set you up with a school in New York City. You have to basically work for an underfunded school. That's one of the stipulations. I love the school that I found originally because it's a smaller school. When I was growing up in Queens, I actually went to a public school and there were 4,000 students. So I love the idea of a smaller community. And the school that I work at now actually had a great reputation. I did a bit of research before it, found a lot of resources that helped me come to my decision. My school's demographic is predominantly people of color. My school is somewhat underfunded, depending on how you look at things. Personally, the signs of an underfunded school show a lack of resources. So, for example, tech. Uh, we do not have as much tech as a privileged school would. What I mean when I say that is we have computer carts, um, we have smart boards, but the Wi-Fi will constantly crash. Not all the computers will work. A lot of them, they're Chromebooks. They will be broken and never get replaced. 
our own personal computers won't work, our printers won't work, and we won't have the funding to replace them, or it can take up to six months. I teach ELA. That requires I order books. A lot of times I have to go through a portal or a system to order my books and they can be backdated for three to six months. Whereas if I was at a privileged school, we would be able to potentially just buy them right away. And we would have a lot more programs that would enable us to do grading in real time, allow us to incorporate more tech into our teaching. And I personally feel that that puts us behind. I am a white teacher in a school that I teach mainly black and brown students. In the beginning, I had a bit of a culture shock. Over the years, I've learned how to build connections with my students beyond race. Most importantly, listening to them. I truly feel that students want to be heard and need to be heard. And if you are a good listener, you can encourage them to speak. One of the first acts of violence, I guess, that I saw was my first year There was a shooting in our schoolyard, and I basically had to make sure the students were all right. They all actually were laughing at me because they saw how scared I was, and I came to realize that they're numb to these things. Hearing gunshots and violence in their communities is something that they are pretty used to. We, this year alone, had shelter-in-place and lockdowns. A shelter-in-place is where you lock the doors of the school building. No one can come in or out, but once you're in the school, you can physically walk around. A lockdown basically means that all of the students have to hide away from the door where there's a window on your um, classroom door, shut off the lights, and go to a place where you cannot be seen. My school definitely celebrates diversity in a ton of different ways through curriculum, performances, clubs, and programs. We have one day a year at the end of Black History Month where the students get to perform and have workshops workshops taught to them by uh, thriving Black scholars and entrepreneurs in their community. It's truly an inspiring day. It's one of my favorite days of the year because the students come together and they perform things they've been working on for months and they get to see people in their community just like them who have succeeded and thrived through incredible obstacles and, and you know tough work that they've gone through. And it definitely inspires the students. I work in the special education realm, which has a lot of missed opportunities for ac- academic success. I think a lot of parents in underserved communities um, are dealing with so much in their own lives. So they're working on supporting their families and making their bills, especially right now after COVID. So what tends to happen is they're unaware of the services that they have a right to get for their students. So, for example, we will have students who need different types of services like speech or occupational therapy or things like that, and it'll be documented where they need these services, but they're not receiving them. And because they don't know the laws and what they're entitled to, a lot of the times they tend to not get these services. And the system knows that. So in these underserved communities, the system will not give them the services that they need to achieve academic success. And these are services they're entitled to. So, for example, we will have students that are selective mutism and, you know, their parents may know this, may not know this, right? Because it's selected. At home, they might be speaking, but in the classroom, they may not. And we can tell them, you know, your child is not speaking during class hours, but they don't understand that they're entitled to ask for evaluations or getting those speech services, getting that occupational therapy that a student might need. 
but they never do and it never happens for them. So those students tend to be cast aside, back of the class, quiet, never really progressing in their education. And it's truly a disservice to them. Teachers are not paid a fair wage. When I say that, what I mean is we definitely go over the hours that the average person thinks that we work, right? So my school day, I get there around 7. Bell rings at 8.20. I get there an hour before because there's a lot of prepping I have to do for that that day. I have to make sure my class is ready. I have to make sure that all my tech is working, which, as I said before, on a day-to-day basis, it may work, it may not. And you kind of just have to roll with the punches. I describe teaching to my friends and family who think that it's not that difficult or don't really understand as Think of that presentation you're putting on for your company that you've been working on for six months, right? You have all your resources. It's to a room of people that are going to be respectful, your bosses, maybe your colleagues, um, but you're nervous and you want to make it perfect, right? Imagine doing that five times a day to a group of 30 students who do not want to listen and are not interested. So I think that that causes a lot of stress and and makes the job difficult. And also, the day doesn't end when the bell rings at 2.44. I go home, and the average person gets to put their job behind them, but I have papers to grade. I'm an ELA teacher, so I have about 150 essays I have to read, and that can take hours. So sometimes I'm grading until... 10 o'clock at night. And being a teacher definitely has rewarding moments, um, such as when I do have a student that is mute in every other class, but will speak to me and only me. And I watch them progress and I watch them start to come out of their shell over the course of four years. That's always very rewarding. I definitely feel that it is worthwhile for me to be a teacher because I do love working with the students on a day-to-day basis. The role is constantly changing. You walk in one day and you have a plan and it completely goes differently. But I do like that day-to-day of everything being different and no day is the same. And, you know, a million things can happen over the course of one day. I never really loved the idea of sitting behind a desk in a monotonous workplace where you do the same thing every day. I like changing. I love the kids' energies. It definitely makes me energized. Just the vibrations in the building on a day-to-day basis and, you know, the funny things they say and, you know, forming relationships with them is really, 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 really fun. But I will say that I hope moving forward that, you know, education is put on the front burner because it feels like for so long it has been on the back burner. But I think that people hopefully are starting to see that it needs more funding. And it also needs more attention and needs to be like our predominant focus as a society as we move forward. Because if we want to continue to be a world leader, we have to put education in the forefront in whatever way that is. Written submission number one. I had just graduated and moved back home to London from my university town, as did a friend of mine. She had trained to be an early years teacher and was working at a small but expensive prep school in our area for ages 2 to 11. She knew I was at a loose end and her school needed a seasonal teaching assistant for the summer term, so I went along for the money while I figured out what to do. 
In general, most of London's private school teaching assistants are young, upper-middle-class girls waiting for their rich boyfriends to propose so they can move to the country and have babies. And if I'm honest, I bought into that a little bit. I met a guy on Tinder who was part of that society due to his dad being in the C-suite of a bank back in the 80s, so he knew a lot of my co-workers, as the British high society community is quite small. As an ethnically ambiguous person, having this posh, rich white guy gave me a lot of credibility at work, and I was invited into friendship groups I had nothing else in common with. So the fact that this wouldn't have happened otherwise didn't sit right with me. But it was fun, and I enjoyed being young and hot and got off on the wealth, nice places, and attention. Okay, Allie's note, like, already, this is so much different than New York City private schools. Okay, continuing. While I was there, we took a class to an event hosted by another London prep school, but this one was a much fancier location. No, this one was much fancier in a great location, and I thought, wow, I would love to work here every day. So I called them to ask if they had permanent TA positions available in September, and they did. At my interview, all I had to do was name drop the other school, because like I said before, it's a small community and you really just need to get in the door. The staff received a catered fancy continental breakfast every Friday morning, and Chanel pearl and diamond necklaces and Louis Vuitton suitcases were standard Christmas gifts from parents. The lower staff, like in the kitchens, still got designer goods. The Russian and Saudi parents would tip hundreds of pounds for tutoring or pay you just to hang out with their kid and speak English, but give you 500 pounds for expenses, like getting a hot chocolate, and you were just told to keep the change. The level of designer clothes these kids had but mistreated hurts my soul. The most beautiful and valuable jackets and accessories being trampled under desks or covered with sticky little hands or never being worn for long before they grow out of them. Adele's kid still goes to this school, and Harper Beckham used to go there before she was swiftly moved to another school, along with the mysterious firing of one of the pretty blonde teachers. After a while, you realize why all of the kids have very familiar last names. It's because they're all from families who are leaders of industry or descendants from notable people in history. I would see a company sign on a building, for example, and realize which kid it belonged to. The parents were the most entitled and oblivious people I ever had the misfortune to meet. They were all either on antidepressants or had drinking and drug problems, and most had a failed marriage behind them. Most of the kids were raised by their household staff. I walked in on a new teacher crying alone in her class, and it was because a parent had shouted at her. But when she told the head teacher about this, they had said, quote, the parents are going to tear strips off you, and I'm going to have to let them. Even as a teacher, these parents do not see you as an industry professional. You are merely a part of their service staff hired to cater to them. I caught a mean girl bullying someone, saying she'd have to walk back to her own country, so I obviously scolded her about disrespecting others, but without raising my voice because they're only 11 years old. She didn't like it, so later that day she walked right into the headteacher's office and reported me for upsetting her. I was called into the headteacher's office and told I would need to apologize to the girl before she could get home and tell her mother. This was also the day I decided I would not be coming back. Prep school UK kids do an exam called the 11 plus to get into secondary school. They're really easy, but there are so few London day schools within the private network that are deemed acceptable within high society, so competition for good places is fierce and everyone gets private tutoring. The parents would approach the school, who would send an all-staff email for TAs to pounce on. I was quite good at this, so I would often get the jobs. 
One of the moms would always sign off her emails as Lady Blank, and I thought she was being eccentric until I realized she was actually a titled landed lady. She was never home, so her kid was raised by the housekeeper and basically spoke Spanish as his first language. My job was just to make sure he did his homework rather than actually prepare for any exams. Another mom really dragged the boarding school her daughter wanted to go to, saying they were obviously exploitative, until she found out a rival mom was sending her daughter there. Then she changed her tune and literally denied the first conversation had even happened when I tried to mention it. She would also neglect her daughter. I knocked on the door one Saturday mid-morning and one of the little girls answered. They were both still in their nighties without breakfast and I had to wake my student up from the sofa to start her lesson. On my way out, the mom stuck her head out of the bedroom window and said she hadn't even realized I was there because she was in her room getting a massage. A very well-known international billionaire family took me to Switzerland with them to nanny their three kids for a week. I was offered £127 per day for the full 24-hour shift, which is essentially exploitation, but I really needed the money. I was booked on a 6am flight, arriving at 1pm at the final destination, and expected to start work immediately. I got very sick from exhaustion by the second day and vomited into this leather-bound vase which I thought was a bin. The parents' first reaction was worrying that I had some contagious disease which the kid would catch, but it was not followed up with any concern for me, nor was I given time off beyond while the kids were at a ski lesson that day. I was not given even one hour of break the whole week other than sleeping at night, and even then, I was on call to listen to the baby monitor while they went out. I also had to share a room with the kids and had no space to myself in the Swiss mountain lodge. Their son couldn't decide which bedtime story he wanted one night, so I picked one out. He literally said these words at the age of four years old. Actually, it's not about what you want. This isn't your place. It's mine. So it's about what I want. My soul left my body. I was in shock, so I didn't respond and just finished bedtime. But there is not a four-year-old on this earth who would come to that logical conclusion and be able to articulate it like that on his own. So he 100% heard an adult say this. I looked up that resort recently, and it's £10,000 per night. I'm glad I got to see it, but it wasn't worth crying into my vomit from exhaustion every day. This is my first year as a lead teacher in a 7th grade math classroom in a small public charter school in Washington, D.C., but my third year working full-time in schools. A typical day in the 7th grade hallway always starts out with music. The students always accuse me of playing too white of music, no matter who it is that the artist is. Students are always dancing, they're greeting each other, giving hugs. If there's no outlet, I have noticed there are times when the energy bubbles over and students fight with each other, either verbally or physically. I mean, sometimes they get into arguments with teachers and staff, but this we've all been trained to handle and to not take personally. As a white teacher in a school with only children of color, I find that I think about my whiteness most when students confront me with it. They'll joke around about my music taste being so white, or they'll say, Miss, are you doing this? Or are you saying this because, you know, I'm black or I'm Hispanic? And these are more lighthearted moments when I know they're looking to see if there's going to be some reaction from me, if I'm going to be cool about it, or if I'm going to get defensive. I've had students ask to touch my hair or ask me, you know, what color are your eyes? They're so pretty. Um, they'll ask me to help them rebraid their hair, which I am totally unqualified to do. Um, or they'll try to make me say something that I know by now is inappropriate in Spanish. Being a teacher is 
hard. I've never experienced anything like lesson planning before. It is the most time-consuming thing I've ever done. I'm required to plan two weeks ahead, every activity, objective, warm-up, cool-down. All aspects of the lesson have to be figured out. I get paid about 64K a year because I have my master's degree. It's a little bit different for individuals who only have their bachelor's degree. It's the highest salary I've ever gotten thus far, but I'm really too afraid to calculate my real hourly rate to include all of the late nights I spend on my laptop, lesson planning, sending emails. I'm up until 9 p.m. almost every night, including the weekends, just working. It's the most laborious job I've ever had because teachers are not just expected to be teachers, but to be therapists, caregivers, and disciplinarians. Unlike some other types of jobs, you can just never leave the work when you walk out of the school building, it's impossible. The lives you interact with on a daily basis, those experiences just follow you home at night. I'm always having trouble sleeping because I think something I might have to do at school is something I'm going to forget or I'm thinking about something that happened at school that day that I just can't get out of my head. Imposter syndrome is possibly the scariest part of the job because even if most of the students are understanding a lesson, if there's a few that aren't, I'm thrown into the spiral of thinking, I must be the worst teacher in the world. Should I quit? I don't think anyone else is struggling like this. No way they aren't. But the fact is that teachers are, and all of them are. And many still can't think of anything else in the world that they would rather be doing than this, despite that experience. Hey, Ali, I am a teacher from Houston, Texas. I have been a teacher going into my now sixth year. I have taught both at a public school and a charter school. Majority of my time was spent in a charter school in a very underprivileged inner city area. So what most people think about charter schools is they're very prestige. You know, enrollment is very limited and you have to be privileged to kind of go to them. But this specific charter school in Houston was completely opposite. So my expectations going in were definitely, this is going to be so nice. The parents and the students are going to be, you know, very welcoming and uplifting and eager to learn, et cetera. And it was completely different. So it was definitely not wealthier children and families. It was definitely more difficult students, underprivileged, low-income, lots of environments that normally you wouldn't expect in a classroom. So when I first got hired at that job, they literally hired me on the spot on the day, which I guess should have probably been a giveaway, knowing what I know now about that charter school. There was a lot of turnover. Um, most teachers didn't stay more than a year or two, whereas I did stay four years because I was dedicated to the students. I have experienced a lot of home troubles at school and having to deal with the psychological issues, um, definitely at the charter school where it was inner city Title I. I dealt with a lot of elementary students that had ED that had anger issues, that had just a lot of violence in their daily life, and they did bring it to school. So that's where I would compare myself to not only being an educator, but I was constantly a counselor, having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, having to de-escalate emotions, having to, you know, just give a break to those students because they needed it. They needed to disengage from their personal life. 
my very first year of teaching, I tell the story to anybody that wants to hear it. It was a fourth grader. He drew an explicit photo of me on how he was going to rape me and then murder me. And like I said, this was a fourth grader. And this was one of the reasons why I was very hesitant to continue teaching. It was my very first year. And my admin team met with the family and they just came to the conclusion that, oh, he's just a kid. He didn't know any better. Thankfully, though, that admin team did not hang around afterwards because they had many, many complaints and did not handle inappropriate things like that at all very well. I had a lot of students who came from poverty, who the only meals they ate were the two meals at school, breakfast and lunch, that, you know, would bug me for snacks. So I would always make sure my cabinet was filled with extra snacks and juice boxes because whatever they ate at school was all they would eat in a day. I, since I was in upper elementary, you know, students are going through puberty. I would keep hygienic supplies on me because a lot of the students, their parents just either couldn't afford it or weren't around to really know that they needed those items. When it came to bullying and racism and items like that at my charter school, we didn't have an in-person counselor. So as I mentioned, a lot of that came from us kind of doing those de-escalations, kind of having those meetings with students when needed. So the charter school, people, like I said, they think it's like wonderful. They think it's amazing. But specifically for my charter school, we didn't even have a counselor. We didn't even really have a gym for PE. We didn't have art class and music class and drama class and things like that that you would typically have. So even myself as being a mother, I would never put my child in a charter school knowing these things now. So one thing similar with my charter school and my public school is I am the minority. I am a white female, specifically at the charter school. I went through a phase of dyeing my hair blonde, and I had students tell me, why do you have yellow hair, miss? Because they had never seen blonde hair in their life. So it was predominantly filled with children of color, and it was me specifically being singled out. I did have some parents that were unreasonable with me and didn't want to speak with me or wouldn't have positive correspondence with me because they knew I was a white teacher in the classroom. So that was very difficult and very challenging at times. However, it's just part of the process and unfortunately something I had to get used to. I haven't really had very much experience with helicopter parents. I have had parents, though, that are very disengaged, and I had to email mom probably weekly or biweekly to let them know, hey, your student is not doing well, your student is, you know, currently failing, you know, per our campus directive, we have to let the parents know when this happens immediately, and I was constantly in contact with this parent. I would make phone calls, I would send emails, and I would receive a response that says, well, I'll tell them to try harder. Well, then come the end of the school year, he's then now being forced to go into summer school. And she sends me an email the last week of school. What can I do to help my son not go to summer school? And unfortunately, I'm like, well, you could have, you know, helped him throughout the school year. So I don't really have helicopter parents. I've never really experienced that. But I do have a lot of just disengaged parents. So I have taught now one year at a public school in KDISD in Houston. And it's more of a suburban area. I do have to purchase a lot of school supplies myself. So I went from teaching elementary to middle school. And students don't necessarily contribute the school supplies like they do in elementary. So I am having to purchase a lot and rely a ton off donations. I do feel like Texas does pay a fair salary. However, of course, it could be more. 
When I first started teaching, I wasn't officially a certified teacher because you have to take a certification exam called your PPR. And I was going getting paid about $48,000. And then after I got certified, it did bump up to about 51, I believe. Again, this was about five years ago. And then moving to my new school district now, I'm at about $63,000. Now, of course, that, you know, isn't glamorous. However, compared to other cities and states that start their teachers at $30,000, There's no way in hell I would do this job for that low (laughs) salary. So all in all, now I am going into my sixth year of teaching. I am staying with KDISD. I do love my job. I do love working with children. It is a challenge every day, and it definitely does test my patience and test me to be a better person, and I learn something new every day. But it is one of those jobs that it is hard work and hard work, and I wouldn't change it for a thing. I have been a teacher for, I would say, six years. I worked at this school for four and a half years. I taught art and mostly the after-school program and art within the after-school program. The school was a medium-sized private school in Seattle. It was one of the most exclusive and um, expensive in the city, in the state, honestly. I didn't aim to teach wealthier children or families, and I didn't feel intimidated by teaching them or having their parents around. But I definitely had grown up in in an area similar. So I knew how to deal with these people. And um, because I was in teaching in a program that was not classroom teaching, it was after school program. And and sometimes I would be in the classroom. I often got these children at their worst and their parents at their worst. I did not make a living wage for the area that the school was in um, by any means. I know there are many teachers still working there who live far, far away from where the school is and could never in a million years live near the school. The salary that quote-unquote administration made was disgusting. The amount of money that parents were charged to send their kids there was astronomical, could be compared to a private college tuition. The school didn't care about my program. It was not the most important thing. It wasn't flashy. So we did not get an incredible amount of support. Walking down the hallways, I would see, you know, backpacks with insane brand names on them. I would see Montclair jackets for children. I would see Patagonia outfits that cost my whole month's salary. Kids would would be talking about going to Hawaii over a long weekend. You know, when driving into school, the streets were lined with Teslas and Mercedes and Maseratis and on on occasion, a few Bentley SUVs. Most of the parents I worked with were kind. I didn't often interact with the terrible ones because they didn't send their kids to the after-school program. They didn't need us. They had full-time nannies or they didn't work so they could pick their kids up from school. I mean, I couldn't really drink the Kool-Aid of the kids in Yeezys and the kids wearing shoes that they're going to grow out of in six months that cost $400. You know, it, it got to be a little difficult for me. I've met quite my fair share of celebrities. One of them is so famous and I really don't know how I didn't freak out. And like a famous musician who's married to a famous athlete and this person was so kind to me and I was giddy for my entire day of, of seeing them. Um, another person, I've never experienced such a rude child in my life. That is the child of an athlete. I was screamed at, yelled at, had things thrown at me 
they ran away and hid from me. And I was asking them to clean up their Legos. I definitely have had kids on my days that I don't look the best. You know, it's like a Monday and I'm tired or it's a Friday and it's been a a hell, hellish week. I've had kids just straight up look at me and go, you look bad. And I'm like, you're seven. And leave the classroom and come back in and say something nice to me. You know, or kids who are like, have you ever been to Spain? And I'm like, oh, no, I haven't been to Spain. I'd, I'd like to go, oh, well, I've been there three times and you could really benefit from some sunshine. Things like that. Things that literally small children have said to me. I've never experienced any bribes of any kind, but I've definitely experienced parents learning how shitty their kid has been and then them like giving me an expensive gift card or like bringing me a treat or something like that. Nothing has raised ethical concerns that they asked me to do, but like working there ethically hurt my soul. I left sort of at the very beginning of the pandemic when I realized that I wasn't going to be supported or paid correctly. I now work for a person I met through the school that appreciates me and I make so much more money. I love working with kids and I don't think that that job was ever going to be a forever job, but yeah, it was a trip and a half. Written submission number two. I'm currently closing out my sixth year teaching second grade at a Title I school in a large city in Kentucky. For reference, Title I provides financial assistance to schools with high percentages of children from low-income families. Like many teachers, my first year of teaching was an absolute nightmare. I had 27 second graders in my very cramped classroom. In second grade, my students are seven going on eight, and it is one of the most formative and important years of elementary school, as most students begin to read fluently and add and subtract. The day before the first day of school, I was casually informed by a member of administration that one of my students wouldn't be there. When I asked why, I was told that he was currently being held in a local behavioral health residential center for children. The reason? He had tried to burn down his house. Twice. He finally came back a few weeks later, and when I tell you this child scared the shit out of me, he truly did. He would go from the cutest, sweetest kid, and in one second, he would become so angry and say graphic, scary things to me, as well as other kids in the class. He ended up back in the behavioral health facility again that year for bringing a lighter to school, given his history. That same year, I had a student who would get so angry that he would throw chairs, scissors, pencils, or anything else within reach. When this happens, we have to do something called a room clear, where I have to get all of the students out of the room and into the hallway. One of the days that I was in the process doing a room clear, the child picked up a chair, looked me dead in the face, and said, I'm going to fucking kill you. Admin removed him from the classroom and brought him back an hour later with a coloring sheet and a new set of crayons in his hand. The most terrifying experience I had with a student occurred a few days later. Years later, excuse me. I was standing with my kids in the hallway when suddenly the student began going up to every single kid and punching them. And I don't mean a light little tap. He was quite literally socking them in the face. My kids started to scream and I had to chase and then pick up the child and restrain him. As I was holding him, I kicked a door nearby in the hall to get another teacher's attention. I yelled to her to let my kids in and lock the door. As they are filing into the room, the student I'm holding is thrashing around and trying to get out of my grasp. The minute the teacher locked the door, I let go of him, and I started to shake and cry. The number one thing any teacher knows is you do not put your hands on a child. 
My first thought was, holy fuck, I am going to be on the five o'clock news for putting my hands on a kid. He's going to have bruises. He's going to say I hurt him. Even though I knew that what I did was justified in protecting the other children, it was such a terrifying moment. My principal came down about a minute later and reassured me that of course I did what was justified, but that I needed to pull myself together and teach my math lesson. After teaching for six years, I've been able to hone my classroom management and relationship building skills down to a science. I've come to find that it is more important than anything to remember that your goal is to make your students into well-rounded humans, no matter how often your administration or district tries to make you feel like you should be churning out test-taking machines. Allowing them to explore topics they are actually interested in, laughing with them, giving them a chance to actually be kids and play are all things that help build a great classroom community. The minute you start to become too rigid or take yourself too seriously, you've lost them. For anyone considering going into education, college will never prepare you for what you will encounter. Give yourself grace and just know that everyone's first year of teaching is hard. But once you get through it, you will be better for it and you'll have some great stories to tell on a podcast one day. I have been a teacher for eight years now and I have taught first grade the entire time and I absolutely have loved it. I work in a public school in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I work in a school that is called a Title I school. And Title I means it is just a very low-income school. The Title I mainly houses refugees from all over the nation and all over different countries. We have a lot from Africa. We have many from the Middle East. And we we're getting a lot from Syria. But within the last couple of years, there are not as many refugees anymore because they have wanted to make South Salt Lake, they say, beautiful again. So they have torn down many of the refugee housing and made bigger and nicer townhomes for not-so-low-income families. So our school dynamics are changing definitely now. And it is very different teaching there. But for the non-refugee students that do go there, they are basically generational poverty students. And so that's just a little bit of background on my school. We have free and reduced breakfast and lunch that they are given every single day. We have technology in every classroom. Every student gets one-to-one technology and everything. So. Since it is Title I and the students themselves and their families are very low income, the school itself is not. I became a teacher for underprivileged children to basically be a stability in their lives. Not saying I couldn't make a difference at a school that wasn't a Title I. I just knew it would make me happier in a place that was. At our school, we have a lot of behavior issues, and a lot of it is due to their backgrounds and where they're coming from. There are many students that are very difficult and difficult behavior-wise, and also difficult in the learning way where they don't speak a language. That's a huge thing. I mean, when I started at my school, there were 59 different languages at our school. Now there's only about 23 or 24, which is still a lot. But think of coming into the school with no knowledge of where you are. You don't speak the language. And everything is just 
different and you don't know what you're doing. That then causes the behavior issues because they act out to get the attention because they don't know any other way. A lot of students at our school have seen and or done drugs or some of our students have been physically and sexually abused. So there are many things that come into factor as you're teaching that the last thing that the student wants to do is read a book or do a math problem. The first thing that they're going to want is a hug when they walk in the classroom and someone to talk to. And I think it takes a certain person as a teacher or as a person in general to really want to be at a school like that. I mean, I earn my students' trust and respect because I am very real with my students. They are only six and seven years old as first graders, but I let them know about my life. I let them know when I'm having a bad day. I let them have bad days. I let them know the second they walk in my classroom, they are safe. They can tell me anything. Teachers don't leave the profession because of the children. Teachers leave the profession because of the administration and of all the things that go on that are from the higher-ups. Honestly, it is not a fair salary that we get. We do not just work nine months of the year. We really don't. Our salary is spread out. We can either choose to get it for 12 months or we can choose to get it for nine months. Most of us choose to get it for 12 months because if we don't choose to get it for the full two and a half or three months we're off in the summer, we won't get paid for those three months. So we divvy it out for those 12 months and those 12 months we are earning less than we would for the nine months of getting it. And we are putting up with so much from parents, from administration, from society, from everyone. And then we don't just stop work at four o'clock. We take things home mentally, physically, doing everything we can. We set up our classrooms in the summer. We do everything possible. And I have done so much these last couple of years that has not been enough that I am now leaving the school that I am at this year. And it is so heartbreaking that this is what I have had to do, but I will not be at this beautiful, wonderful school that I am at because of things that not the children, but the staff and the administration has done. I've been a teacher in some capacity for the past 10 years. I've taught at private schools in Austin, Texas and Los Angeles, where I currently am. This private school in Los Angeles has a wide variety uh social economic backgrounds but it is definitely one of the top private schools in the city and attracts really high profile people i did actively choose to teach in private school coming out of graduate school i didn't have a lot of money and i wanted to focus on my own work which is making art and i knew i couldn't be supported to do that in a public school capacity private school has a lot of resources. They want their teachers to be successful outside and inside of school. My school is really glamorous. It's over the top. It's nicer than colleges I've attended, uh, universities I've attended or seen. And I do tell the students that when they walk into the dark room or the ceramics lab or the printmaking lab, theater production, that it won't get a lot nicer than this after high school. I wish I could say I was a teacher because I love to teach and want to change the world. And it's true, but also I feel like public education is just so 
hopeless that if I went into that, it would completely consume my outlook on teaching and I wouldn't have a life outside of trying to change that. I really enjoy my job, except this year things have changed significantly because of the pandemic when we finally came back into person starting last fall in 2021 after over a year and a half of living at home, all the kids were very emotionally underdeveloped. And this compared to my friends who are teaching in public school came out in very different ways because of the entitlement that the students have. My partner teaches in public school and I'd come home and tell them stories and they would be like, okay, wow, my kids are not assholes to authority in that way. Like they have they can be awful in some ways, but they're not directly talking back to anyone. One of my requirements is that all the students have to attend a visiting artist lecture. Again, the glamorous side of a private school is that we have five visiting artist lectures a year, and they come to school and they speak. One of my students says, do I have to go to the artist lecture? My dad has more art in his house and contemporary art in his house than most museums or galleries where I snapped being rich does not exclude you from doing work but in reality that's kind of what America feels like anyways another student was leaving for about 30 minutes every class and he'd come back and I'd be like were you in the bathroom that whole time and he'd be like yep and finally, one day, I called him over and I was like, you know what? Like, something's going on with your body and your stomach. And if you have to be in the bathroom that long every class, like, we need to call, we need to call the doctor. Just kind of trying to show him the ridiculousness of it all. And he deadpan stares at me and says, I eat a lot, so I poop a lot. One time... During the pandemic and I was teaching online, I was doing an art appreciation class and I was showing them a Richard Serra sculpture. It's one of those big ones, the steel walls, they lean and they're always almost outside and I'm showing it. And one student goes, I think I have that in my backyard. And I was like, what do you mean you think you have it? And they proceed to go out into their backyard and they're like I think this is a Richard Serra but as they're walking out to their backyard they pass like five other pieces of art this school is functioning like a small liberal arts college even if you go to the school and you do not make fantastic grades if you choose to go to college afterwards you will be prepared and the kids who do not go to college probably already have a career um, either in social media or their parents are somehow in the industry, the industry being, um, I guess, Hollywood. There's definitely some parents who are helicopter parents and kids who are like, if I don't make straight A's, I my parents are going to be so mad at me and I kind of roll my eyes because I'm teaching art. But then at the same time, I do get emails from parents like, why does my kid have an A- minus in your art class? And it's like, what? why is... Like, this shouldn't be a concern, and A- minus is a great grade. And, and I think being in private school, in a way, I feel like it should be 
Grading should be different than being in public school. You're in this really individualized place that can focus on the individual. And so do grades have to fully be the marker of success? My hope in teaching at a private school and working with these super ambitious and well-supported students is to instill in them critical thinking about the world around them and to be aware of how to help others before they help themselves. It is kind of hard to plant that in their brain when they have access to everything. Once again, my degenerate angels, I'm Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. Congratulations on surviving another trip into the underworld, and make sure to collect your souvenir photo on the way out. Just kidding. There is no souvenir photo, but there is merch on my website, www.alleyweissworld.com. We've got the cutest sweatshirts and G-strings ready to cover your body in love. But if you're pinching your pennies but still want to support, the most helpful thing you can do is leave a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. I know all hosts ask for this and it's high key annoying, but in my case, the more reviews the show has, the easier it is for new listeners to find the show and become future anonymous contributors, which means more entertainment and powerful life lessons for you. Also, please tell a friend and an enemy about this episode if you think it will resonate with them, because word of mouth marketing means I won't have to do something that will embarrass you all, like participating in an Instagram giveaway. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed your hour with me, and I look so forward to seeing and hearing from you next week. Until then, be good. Follow Tales of Taboo on TikTok at Tales of Taboo and on Instagram at Tales of Taboo Pod. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Allie Weiss World. Tales of Taboo is part of the Eve Podcast Network and a Forever Dog production. Produced and narrated by Allie Weiss. Edited by Isabel McMahon. Executive produced by Mariah Nicholas. Intro by Chris Stathopoulos. Forever Dog Productions is Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm.